This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World. Now in many places across Aotearoa New Zealand, conservation efforts are underpinned by communities. And this week we bring you two stories of volunteers and communities who are doing their bit. Later, we will hear from Katie Gossett as she catches up with passionate volunteers at the Charlesworth Reserve in Ōtautahi Christchurch. But first, we head to Owaka Museum, where Roy Johnston of the South Otago branch of Forest and Bird is trying to do some crowd wrangling. Right, thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, Now, Owaka is in the Catlins, an area between Balclutha and Invercargill that straddles both South Otago and Southland. And we're all here for the opening of the Catlins Bats on the Map exhibition, a community exhibition all about Catlins Pekapeka. And it's a mixed crowd, from young kids to older landowners and Everything in between. And this applause, well, that's for Katrina Gower, the person who has been driving this project in her spare time. So I'm a science communicator by day and by night I go out and look for bats and I also spend a lot of time working with the community talking about bats and bat conservation and getting people enthused and excited about their bats. I live here. And what is it about bats that interests you? I don't know. Some people like quilting. Some people like collecting stamps. Some people like lying on a beach. I like bats. (laughs) I don't eat them. I don't collect them. I'm just, yeah, I just took to bats. Um, But it's not just bats. You need the whole ecosystem. And I love the whole ecosystem. I love all the other things that are in there, even the things they eat. Tell me about the bats that you find here in the Catlins. Okay, so here the bats here in in the Catlins are Chalinolobus tuberculatus, which is the New Zealand long-tailed bat. Um, This is the sort of like the only key population down here on the east coast of South Island. There is a remnant population in uh, South Canterbury which is quite intensively being monitored at the moment. So we now know that it is definitely in decline, very sadly. And there are a lot of conservation measures going in to protect that population, which is excellent. And some of the landowners and the farmers around here get quite excited about the things that they're discovering up there um, because they can see their bats down here and go, oh, we could do that. Oh, we should know that, which is lovely. 
And when did the bat survey start down here in the Catlins? Um, well, I was employed by Fergus Sutherland, who ran something called Catlins Equatours in 2013 to look for um, the distribution of bats, any bats of any description, in the Catlins. And so I've been looking at them, or looking for them, since then. Now, I did that very much on my own to start with. Um, where I had to learn about the species, learn about what kind of habitats and ecology they had, and I had to find out um, what kind of detectors and things I could use and who could I contact and how would it all work. So even after I stopped actually being formally employed by him, I carried that on because by then I'd fallen in love with the Catlins. And so I kind of like lived here from then. Katrina then managed to secure funds and support from both Forest and Bird and the Otago Participatory Science Platform. And these helped her continue to combine her two loves, the Catlins and its bats. And for Katrina, it was clear that to have an impact, it would be important to share her enthusiasm and knowledge with the whole Catlins community. I've always been a community worker and I recognise that Sometimes the heart of the community is the child. And so working with children, they're working with their parents, their family. So they are then um, taking that home. Um, but also they're very open. They, they don't come with a prejudice. So you can start talking about things and actually um, see what they're interested in. So working with the schools was essential to me. That's you're, you're working with the heart of the community. But then the, the lot of the Catlins is um, farmed. It's very, very rural. It's privately owned. Yes, we have a big chunk that is beautiful um, nature reserve that is dock owned, that's public land. And yes, I could do it in a scientific way and go and put my detectors in and just into the, the public areas. But actually, if you want to make a difference, the bats fly out onto the private land. They fly over everybody's land. You need to talk to the landowners. So yes, I wanted to reach those landowners as well. Some of them are older. They won't necessarily have children. They might have grandchildren at school. Um, so, yes, I wanted to contact them too and get them involved and, yeah, get them enthused. And um, two years later, I'm absolutely thrilled that, yes, they are excited that they have bats flying across their land. <laughs> the project has been using two different types of bat detectors, and these have been made available to anyone throughout the Catlins that would like to use them. So project team members Eddie and Austin of Catlins Area School explain the two types to me and how they work. Hi, I'm Eddie and today I'm here to talk to you guys about like bats and bat detectors. So with me right here I've got a small bat detector. Basically what this one is, is you hold it up in the air and you wave it round, you turn it up, and you go like... And to find a specific long-tail bat, or just a long-tail bat, you have to put it onto the frequency of 40. That's how you, like, know if there's a bat there. Hi, I'm Austin, and I went on a camp with Eddie around by just up the Awaka Valley, and I'm going to talk to you about a detector, but... It's not like Eddie's, it's one that you hang in the tree. Okay. So basically, you have to like unscrew it because so, it's waterproof. It's basically kind of like a microphone. And the um, micro SD card that it's put in here is to record the like hearings of the bat. 
So you're hanging in the tree where you think bats might be? Yeah, there's like a um, kind of like, it's like Velcro, but it's not. It's like kind of plastic, but like you can, it's really secure so it doesn't fall off like the tree. Okay. And then once you've hung it on the tree, do you hang it like overnight or yeah. for a few nights or you can choose when it stops recording so you could have it going for like five days i'm pretty like the battery goes for quite a while mm. yeah okay and then you take it back off the tree and what happens then well if like whoever has like the micro sd card for example katrina she would load it onto her computer and she can look at like if there was any sounds the whole class got a turn at taking home one of the bat detectors that you hang up on a tree. So I went down to my dad's and hung it up on a tree outside, having maybe like maybe three percent chance, thinking that I might find something. And I left it down there for a few days, and then I took the microchip up to Katrina, mm-hmm. and I hung it up in the cargo. And we looked at it, and we found that there was some bat readings. And later on, she discovered and got back to me saying that that was actually the first time someone had encountered bats in, like, a century. Okay. So you've got this cool new finding. You detected Pekka Pekka in Invercargill. Yeah, I was really soaked. I just hope one day I can find some more. Long-tailed bats are one of two native endemic bat species here in Aotearoa, the other being the short-tailed bat. And together... These two bat species actually make up the entirety of New Zealand's native land mammals. Now, in New Zealand's threat classification system, the status of the long-tailed bat is nationally critical, meaning it is one of the species that is most severely threatened. I must admit to knowing very little about long-tailed bats in general, but Eddie and Austin helped me out. What do you guys know about long-tailed bats? Well, long-tailed bats... Uh, a wee bit smaller and they, their shriek is a wee bit louder and also they, so if you go find, ever find a short-tailed bat, they're a lot more feisty, they'll move around, try and bite you, whereas a long-tailed bat is a lot more calmer and will just let you do whatever you're trying to do to it. And where do long-tailed bats like to live? They like to live in old trees, dead trees, like tree trunks, bush, just places near a river. So they can, in places where there's lots of bugs where they can go eat. Ah, so they like bugs. Yeah. Mm. Okay. What kind of things do they eat? Mm. Insects. <laughs> like maybe... Spiders. Spiders, uh, moths, a lot of moths. Yeah. And maybe sometimes like little sandflies or itchy bite things that come and bite your arm. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good then. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One part of this project involved Bat Camp, where local school students, their teachers, parents and some volunteers camped together overnight, looking for bats and learning all about them too. Two of the local forest and bird members who've been helping on the project are Janine and Gordon Thompson, and they run Earthlore nature tours and activities in Owaka, where they aim to engage people in conservation, with a particular focus on invertebrates. And you've been part of the school visits and the famous bat camp. (laughs) What was your involvement in those? Yeah, no, the bat camp was really cool. Um, What we do there is we go out and we trap, put a a moth trap, a light trap out, 
so that the kids can see what invertebrates or what moths are flying around at night so they then can see what the bats are feeding on. So that's basically what we do is we'll, we'll go down, we'll set up a light trap, it'll stay out all night and then we'll return the next day and go over and ID the moths or invertebrates, you know, there might be crane fly, there might be something else, um, mayfly, whatever, yeah, depending on the time of year, what it is. And do we know, do bats have a preference for a certain type of invertebrate over others? They don't seem to, it just depends on the time of year and, and what is about. So there's lots of you know, you know flies and mayflies and those sorts of things. Uh, I suppose because possibly because they're easy to catch. I don't know. You left to ask the bats. <laughs> oh, if only I could. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I can't hear them. <laughs> but that's the thing. There's there's so much that we don't know about bats and what they eat is all part of it. So by going out and starting to keep a record of what's out at different times of the year then we can help build up a, a picture of, of what the bats are eating. And plus going out on surveys, we both go out, along with a number of other people, uh, do transect walks of eight kilometres in an evening. And we do that in January and February every year. So there are several routes around the Catlins and we do the same eight kilometres every year and take a record of how many bats we see or hear, what the weather conditions are like, how many moths and invertebrates are out, cloud cover, all those things we record. And by building up that picture every year, we can see whether bat numbers are growing, declining. Yeah, all information helps with their conservation. So it is all go in the Catlins. Groups doing transect surveys with handheld detectors each year. School children and landowners hanging out detectors in different areas at different times. And so information about location and weather conditions and insect numbers and identifications and bat recordings all being collected. What then happens to all this data? This data is all going to be compiled um, and then is actually going to go to DOC to the national database. Um, the transect data, it's, we're on, we've done seven years worth of that citizen science data. So it's based on um, DOC sort of protocols, but slightly different because it's a bit cooler down here. So we use a different temperature. Um, you know, we'll go out to eight degrees. Don't wait for a 10 degree night because you might wait a long time. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, we have that. South of the South Island. <laughs> yes. And again, that's um, the full data set goes to um, DOC, so that to the national database. So that's actually Moira Pride who coordinates that. Okay. So that will feed into the wider data that they have yes. on this bat species, yes. on the Pekka Pekka. Yeah. yeah. And will that then feed into knowledge about conservation it's it's the it's in a sense it's kind of like a background because one part of the bat recovery project for um dog for the long-tailed bat species the very first fundamental part is find the distribution we still don't have the distribution north and south island we are finding it um and so yes it will feed into that it will also feed into um being part of the population, sort of understanding of distribution of what kind of health of a population. We don't have much on the catching 
things yet, but they will actually be there for also more detailed science. So students who want to come down and do projects, they can, you know, they have that kind of background. They know roughly where the bats are, they roughly where they forage. So that's a starting point for their work as well, for doing more catching. So yeah, it is. Feeding the data collected into Doc's bigger picture will help longer term goals of conservation of long-tailed bats across Aotearoa. But on exhibition opening night, it's all about this community and putting bats on the map in the area they live in. Well, way down I went, I was the first one there that night. And then next thing, Petrina Grow, she turns out to be a boss lady. And uh, yeah, sure enough, there was bats and sort of never looked back. Very, very exciting. And we've just found bats down by the Pitakanui Falls. So we're, my husband put another couple of detectors out this morning. It's just beautiful being out in the hills, star shining, and you hear the bats flying. It's just amazing. It's, I, I thought, oh, bats, bats. But man, it's just unreal. I'm hooked. Yeah, we found out that there were bats flying past that place at 2 o'clock in the morning, which I haven't seen yet because okay. I'm not up at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's fair. Massive thank you to the Catlins community for sharing their bat stoke and knowledge with me. In particular, thanks to Katrina Gower, Gordon and Janine Thompson, Eddie and Austin, John, Ralph, Jim and Helen May, all of whom you heard share their bat excitement. From bats to butterflies, with a helping of no or cook scurvy grass in between. Katie Gossett meets volunteers at the Charlesworth Reserve who are carefully looking out for a rare butterfly and a type of coastal cress that is being brought back from the edge of extinction on mainland Aotearoa. Look at these beautiful native plants right on the mud. Like we've got fields of glass wort. There's this glass wort here. That's Tanya Jenkins, manager of the Avon Heathcote Estuary Ihutai Trust in Christchurch. She's describing a wetland wonderland that's gradually being regenerated. That's self-seeding. We didn't put that there. That's just nature coming back, and it's so awesome to see that. We're in the Charlesworth Reserve, a full 20-hectare parcel of land near the city's estuary. It was drained in the 1920s and used as farmland, but in 1991 restoration began. The Christchurch City Council recreated tidal pools, and in the years since, the paddocks have been returning to nature, with volunteers like Tanya and Bill Simpson putting in more than 100,000 plants. So the things like the Raupo, um, some of the flats, some of the pittosporums, they're just naturally regenerating now, so that's good. And a walk through the mud shows the wetland has matured now too. Many wading birds come here, including the migratory bar-tailed godwit, or kuaka. A lot of them are attracted by the food on offer, like these mud crabs at our feet. Millions of them, millions. They're just food mecca for the birds here. I'm going to hold on to you, you've got gum roots and I don't. <laughs> and it's very sticky. Elsewhere, the creation of lakes and islands has allowed birds to get away from humans and cats, even if they can't escape all predators. We have 52 rat traps in the reserve. That's a lot. We've even caught a stoat this month. And stoats, of course, are the worst. You name it, they'll eat the lot. 
and they're also the very hardest to catch. It's taken the park ranger five goes, but he finally got the little bugger this week. Hooray! <laughs> and hopefully he didn't have a big family here. But our trip here has a particular focus. Somewhere in the reserve, amongst the more than 100,000 plants, is one that not only has important ecological values, it's also got a pretty interesting backstory. It's called Cook's scurvy grass. The English explorer and navigator Captain James Cook is of course a well-known figure on our shores and whilst controversy surrounds some of his colonial activities he's generally thought to have taken good care of his crew. In his era, scurvy, a disease caused by a deficiency in vitamin C was the scourge of many sailors' lives. But Cook, so the story goes, was very aware of providing fresh food to keep his crew healthy, a practice he would continue as the New Zealand horizon beckoned. On Friday, October the 6th, the midshipman Nicholas Young saw land from the masthead and we stood directly for it. This land became the subject of much eager conversation, but the general opinion seemed to be that we had found the Terra Australis Incognita. That's an early documentary from the NZBC, and it's a dramatisation of Cook's journey along the coast of the North Island from the 6th of October, 1769, to the 13th of January, 1770. The journals in these first hundred days reveal many aspects of Captain Cook. Here is one for which history has awarded him the highest honour. Cook, the 18th century dietitian. At four o'clock in the morning of the 29th, having got on board our wood and water and a large supply of excellent celery with which the country abounds and which proved a powerful antiscorbutic, I unmoored and put to sea. No one could deny that a healthy crew, free from the dreaded and all too common scurvy, was a good insurance for success. And whilst scurvy grass is not specifically mentioned there, it's generally understood that this subspecies of coastal cress, also known as no, was one of the plants added to the menu to help keep Cook's sailors healthy. When he used to come past New Zealand, he used to harvest the scurvy grass because of the vitamins in it prevent them from getting scurvy. He even got a massive award back in England in 1700-something for um, being an example to other captains of looking after his crew. So a very special little plant. The Department of Conservation describes coastal cress as one of New Zealand's lesser-known endangered species. Six indigenous coastal species are currently threatened with extinction. Part of the reason is browsing by stock and introduced mammals. The quest is also targeted by pests like white butterflies and cabbage aphids, and there's also a potential link between its habitat and seabirds and seals, and so when those animal numbers decline, so too does the cook's scurvy grass. In short, the department says while Cook was able to collect plenty of cress during the 18th century, fewer botanists have seen it in recent years. And so in 1998, it launched a coastal cresses recovery plan to increase their populations. There are trials around New Zealand, but finding the right spot isn't always easy. They're very fussy plants. They need to have gravel, they need to have sandy soil, they need to have salty air, 
and they need lots of guava, bird poo in other words. So that's quite a combination that you need to find. And so we set off in search of this elusive, if somewhat fussy, plant. Now, although the recovery plan's been going for over 20 years, these plants were just put in in mid-2020. And because we need to protect them, we can't reveal exactly where within the reserve each of them is. There were originally 12 of them. But as we go around checking on each plant, it becomes apparent that that number has dropped to 10. So we've lost two. Well, that's not a big deal yet. I mean, they'll, you know, you can see there's a lot of flowers there and they'll go to seed and they'll probably do all right. We weeded some of the plants, but we left the weeds around other plants to see if that makes a difference, which one does better, where we weed or not. Because sometimes weed can be a little bit of a, a wind protection for other plants. And it may, because the weeds get really wet, as you can see, it may be able to hold the moisture on the ground around the plant. So it's, it's all still experimental. There's quite a bit of wind here. I can hear it blowing across the mics. Yeah, it is. So we've lost a few, but that one there is still looking green, isn't it? Hmm? That one there has got lots of flowers on it. So I would say all of the plants are looking good. There's not one that I'm concerned about. Members of the Trust will report back to the Department of Conservation about the progress of the scurvy grass trial. However, in the short term, it's promising to see the plants responding well and a just reward for the many hours spent creating an environment that will allow native species to thrive. It was fantastic that you know this site was uh, chosen to see if it would grow in the Christchurch Canterbury area. Just bringing back a species like that, I mean, I didn't even know about it until we had the opportunity to see it here. So I think that's fantastic. Being able to recolonise that, bring it back from extinction, how awesome is that? And speaking of bringing species back... As we walk down there, we're passing the area where the um, butterflies are. There is another trial going on within this vast reserve. The butterfly Bill's referring to is the rare indigenous Rauprahas copper. It's a tiny, it looks a bit like a, a miniature monarch. It's quite colourful, red. It's a beautiful little, little beast it is. So we'll walk along and see if we can see some. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? This is what they go for, Mulembekia. And, the, and some of these plants here are actually original plants, like weren't planted. Little tiny remnant of Mulembekia was still here. So it looks weedy, but we're letting it grow because it's absolutely ideal for insects. And the butterfly really likes it. When you look at that Mulembekia, you can see how tangled that is and how thick it is. So that presumably the butterflies would find that great shelter from, from things like birds and, you know, because the birds would find it very hard to penetrate into that. Yeah, definitely. To pick up insects. It's yeah. very thick. Yeah. Once again, the volunteers here are monitoring a species to support a trial by the Department of Conservation. On the 10th of December in 2019, Brian Patrick, who is Department of Conservation and is the butterfly expert in New Zealand and probably beyond, he f happened to find, by chance a wee colony of these little butterflies in South Canterbury, where there was Mulembekia plants along a farm, um, farm paddock. There were quite a few of them, so they thought 
let's try and transfer them so we can get another colony. So he took 19 of them, males and females, and put them in here. And he said, just keep a lookout now, because we're always here, so we're forever looking, to see if they survive. Predictably, the butterflies don't show themselves today while we're actively hunting. This is the area where we initially released it, but it doesn't guarantee that they will be right here. They could be spread out everywhere. But the butterflies are a frequent sight here. What, only two weeks ago we were walking along here and we saw them again, we see them regularly. So they are surviving and probably thriving. And we base that on the fact that they don't usually go far away from sort of, sort of territorial. And I know exactly where they put them, but they're now like 50, 60 metres away from where we put them. So that means, presumably, they're multiplying and finding their own territories. So that's great news. That's, again, you know, another species that we are able to bring back from extinction because this wetland restoration project is just working. It's not beautifully landscaped, it's rough. But what we've done is we allow nature to do its own recovery. Just give it a little bit of a hand. That was Katie Gossett speaking to Tanya Jenkins. Tanya's from the Avon Heathcote Estuary Ihutai Trust. And Katie also spoke with volunteer Bill Simpson, who is helping to replant the Charlesworth Reserve. Thanks all. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound mixing was by Alex Harmer and Phil Benj. And Tim Watkin is the executive producer. The archival audio was provided by Na Taunga Sound and Vision. Make sure you don't miss a single week's episode by following the Our Changing World podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can find all of our previous Our Changing World episodes on the webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And you'll also find photos and links related to the stories in this week's episode. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter, we are at RNZ Science. Don't be shy, get in touch. Now, if you've got an interest in conservation, make sure you have listened to and or watched the podcast and documentary film series, Fight for the Wild. You can find it on the RNZ website or in your podcast feed. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon, and I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki. your coolest bat fact do you have a cool bat fact i like the fact that bats like catch their dinner or food in midair like they just eat it in midair just catch it in midair and nom 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're running around a field and somebody puts a burger out in front of you you just keep running <laughs> yep that's a cool fact yeah <laughs> Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.